ASI. This is season number six, episode number two. My name is Rush Shaw, your host. ASI247.org. That would be the website. Kicking off 2018 with some brand new kid rock. And when life it burns you like a candle. Amen, brothers and sisters. We're kicking it off with some life stuff. That's all this is, man. Just life stuff. Not some gripping thing with its hands around your throat. a couple of questions in this. Uh, number one was, uh, what is intimacy disorder and what does it have to do with sexual addiction? And I'll answer that in a minute. Uh, my current situation in 2018 is kicking off this new year. Uh, my confidence level, uh, sobriety, uh, stuff like that. Um, and three, uh, what does it mean to shift our want-tos, because I've talked about that a lot in this podcast. Like, I'm not interested in white-knuckling through another day. You know, if, if you're, I've said this from the beginning, right, for years. If you want to look at pornography, you're going to look at pornography, all right? This kind of uh, beating yourself up over it or, uh, you know, trying to white knuckle through again that stuff does not work long term it just doesn't um yes that's the kind of teaser cliffhanger thing i left uh, last week's show off with so that's uh me in my van on the digital recorder device i have just pouring my heart out. Uh, that's one thing healthy that I found about this podcast is it's like blogging for me. It's like writing. It's like journaling and uh, letting you, the listener, behind the counter in my life, so to speak. It's funny how we reason out our identity amongst other people in life, right? Um, some may call it wearing a mask, uh, I think for the reasons that this show exists, getting into the topic of what is intimacy disorder, I think a great heart-probing question might be, what's it like really to get naked in front of another person? Which brings me to a grippingly honest TED Talk that I heard uh, by a woman named... Cameron Russell. 
You may not know her name, but you may have seen her pictures. Uh, Cameron Russell is a model, um, a supermodel, I guess you could say, a professional model for over 10 years. And she, I'm going to play some clips for you. I can't play the whole thing. Um, and there is visuals involved. So uh, I, I urge you to go check out her TED Talk on TED.com or look it up on YouTube. Uh, Cameron Russell model uh, is what you would search for. And it had me thinking about not just that models get naked, but this one getting naked on the inside when it comes to value the image that we show the world and if we're really really known on the inside like what does it look like to to really go to where she goes as refreshingly empathetic and as self-aware as she is again the speaker's name is Cameron Russell on the TED stage it's really beautiful here's here's some clips for you I've been a model, um, actually, for 10 years. <laughs> um, and I feel like there's an uncomfortable tension in the room right now because I should not have worn this dress. <laughs> so, luckily, I brought an outfit change. Um, this is the first outfit change on the TED stage. Um, if some of the women were really horrified when I came out, you don't have to tell me now, but I'll find out later on Twitter. <laughs> The worst part is putting this sweater over my head because that's when you all laugh at me, so don't do anything while it's over my head. All right. So why did I do that? Image is powerful, um, but also image is superficial. I just totally transformed what you thought of me in six seconds. And in, in this picture, I had actually never had a boyfriend in real life. Um, I was totally uncomfortable, and the photographer was telling me to arch my back and put my hand in that guy's hair. And of course, barring surgery, um, or the fake tan that I got two days ago for work, um, there's very little that we can do to transform how we look. And how we look, though it is superficial and immutable, has a huge impact on our lives. So today, for me, being fearless means being honest. And I am on this stage because I am a model, I'm on this stage because I am a pretty white woman. In my industry, we call that a sexy girl. Um, and I'm going to answer the questions that people always ask me, but with an honest twist. So the first question is, how do you become a model? Um, and I always just say, oh, I was scouted, but that means nothing. Um, the real way that I became a model is I won a genetic lottery, and I am the recipient of a legacy. And maybe you're wondering, what is a legacy? Well. For the past few centuries, we have defined beauty not just as health and youth and symmetry that we're biologically programmed to admire, but also as tall, slender figures and femininity and white skin. And this is a legacy that was built for me, and it's a legacy that I've been cashing out on. Um, and I know there are people in the audience who are skeptical at this point. And maybe there are some fashionistas who are like, wait, Naomi, Tyra, Joan Smalls, Lou Wen. And first, I commend you on your model knowledge. Very impressive. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, I have to inform you that in 2007, a very inspired NYU PhD student counted all the models on the runway, every single one that was hired. And of the 677 models that were hired, only 27 or less than 4% were non-white. 
The next question people always ask me is, can I be a model when I grow up? And the first answer is, I don't know, they don't put me in charge of that. Um, <laughs> but the second answer, and what I really want to say to these little girls, is why? You know, you can be anything. You could be the president of the United States, or the inventor of the next internet, or a ninja cardiothoracic surgeon poet, which would be awesome, because you'd be the first one. <laughs> um, um, saying that you want to be a model when you grow up is akin to saying that you want to win the Powerball when you grow up. It's, you know, out of your control, and it's awesome, and it's not a career path. I will demonstrate for you now 10 years of accumulated model knowledge, because unlike cardiothoracic surgeons, it can just be distilled right into right now. So if the photographer is right there, and the light is right there like a nice HMI, and the client says, Cameron, we want a walking shot, well, then this leg goes first, nice and long, this arm goes back, this arm goes forward, the head is at three quarters, and you just go back and forth, you just do that. And then you look back at your imaginary friends, 300, 400, 500 times. It will look something like this. Um, hopefully less awkward than that one in the middle. That was, I don't know what happened there. Unfortunately, after you've gone to school and you have a resume and you've done a few jobs, you can't say anything anymore. So if you say you want to be the president of the United States, but your resume reads underwear model 10 years, people give you a funny look. The next question people always ask me is, do they retouch all the photos? And yeah, they pretty much retouch all the photos, but that is only a small component of what's happening. This picture is the very first picture that I ever took, and it's also the very first time that I had worn a bikini. And I didn't even have my period yet. I know we're getting personal, but uh, you know, I was a young girl. This is what I looked like with my grandma just um, a few months earlier. Here's me on the same day as this shoot, my friend got to come with me. Here's me at a slumber party a few days before I shot French Vogue. Um, here's me on the soccer team and in V Magazine. And here's me today. And I hope what you're seeing is that these pictures are not pictures of me. They are constructions. And they are constructions by a group of professionals, by hairstylists and makeup artists and photographers and stylists and all of their assistants and pre-production and post-production. And they build this. That's not me. Um, Okay, so the next question people always ask me is, do you get free stuff? <laughs> I do have too many eight-inch shields, which I never get to wear, except for earlier. Um, but the free stuff that I get is the free stuff that I get in real life, and that's what we don't like to talk about. Um, I grew up in Cambridge, and one time I went into a store and I forgot my money, and they gave me the dress for free. Um, when I was a teenager, I was driving with my friend, who was an awful driver, and she ran a red, and of course, we got pulled over. And all it took was a sorry officer and we were on our way. Um, and I got these free things because of how I look, not who I am. And there are people paying a cost for how they look and not who they are. I live in New York, and last year of the 140,000 teenagers that were stopped and frisked, 86% of them were black and Latino, and most of them were young men. There are only 177,000 young black and Latino men in New York, so for them it's not a question of will I get stopped, but how many times will I get stopped, when will I get stopped? Um, when I was researching this talk, I found out that of the 13-year-old girls in the United States, 53% don't like their bodies. And that number goes to 78% by the time that they're 17. So the last question people ask me is, you know, what is it like to be a model? And I think the answer that they're looking for is, if you are a little bit skinnier and you have shinier hair, you will be so happy and fabulous. And when we're backstage, we give an answer that maybe makes it seem like that. We say, it's really amazing to travel, and it's amazing to get to work with creative, inspired, passionate people. 
And those things are true, but they're only one half of the story because the thing that we never say on camera, that I have never said on camera, is I am insecure. And I'm insecure because I have to think about what I look like every day. Um, And if you ever are wondering, you know, if I have thinner thighs and shinier hair, will I be happier? Um, You just need to meet a group of models because they have the thinnest thighs and the shiniest hair and the coolest clothes and they're the most physically insecure women probably on the planet. Um, So when I was writing this talk, I found it very difficult to strike an honest balance because on the one hand, I felt very uncomfortable to come out here and say, look, I've received all these benefits from a deck stacked in my favor. And it also felt really uncomfortable to follow that up with, and it doesn't always make me happy. But mostly, it was difficult to unpack a legacy of gender and racial oppression when I'm one of the biggest beneficiaries. Um, But (laughs) I'm also happy and honored to be up here, and I think that it's great I got to come you know, before 10 or 20 or 30 years had passed and I'd had more agency in my career because maybe then I wouldn't tell the story of how I got my first job or maybe I wouldn't tell the story of how I paid for college, which seems so important right now. That, listeners, is a rare human being right there. Young, in her 20s, talking about the dangers of image keeping and in the profession that she's in. There's something to understanding the power of the image that we create for the world and how and how that messes with our ability to be vulnerable and in real honest to goodness connected bonded relationships man talks like that <clears throat> It encourages us to get honest with ourselves about the safety mechanisms that we create for our relationships with other people in the world. With the exteriors that we build around us, the hard exteriors that I heard, actually James Hatfield of Metallica, of all people, I heard him in an interview Uh, saying that, you know, the harder the exterior, usually the softer the inside. The very stony-like exterior many times is to protect the soft, breakable, egg-like cargo on the inside. The bigger the brand we're presenting on the outside, the, the more we're trying to protect something soft and vulnerable on the inside. And we all have our vulnerabilities. We all have our cracks. We all, humans, man, the bulk of us, all of us, I would say, to different degrees, are no stranger to heartache. During that TED Talk, she showed those pictures of herself. I'm not sure if you heard that in that audio, but she's... That she shows one picture of herself, this super sexy picture of herself, and then the same day, a picture with her grandma. And she's a kid, man. She's a a child, right? She's standing there with her grandma, or at a slumber party. They show her on the on the same day she shot this this you know pictorial of her in a bikini. 
and and you know side by side she shows herself at, at a slumber party and that's somewhat heartbreaking the the level of exploitedness and and she shows that and talks about her her vulnerabilities and her insecurities cuz that's what we're getting into here when it comes to intimacy disorder it's being conscious of the soft interior we're trying to protect, of our tenacious ability to keep the fences and holes and insecurities filled when it comes to our our natural default mode of image keeping. Because if you really knew me, would you still love me? Would you still... Um, would you still want to be around me? Would you still think I'm okay? Think that I matter? That's a question a lot of us have rolling around in our heart and in our spirit while our head is furiously throwing coal into the freight train of image keeping as it rolls down the tracks. But on the inside... It might break your heart, we may be thinking, if you knew me well. This is a bumper from a Gaslight Anthem. It would break your heart if you knew me well. See, I have run so far that I've lost myself. There are things I have seen That I never will tell That drove me out of my mind And inside myself And oh my, my It would break your heart If I showed you my scars If I played you my favorite song Lying here in the dark Oh my, my it would break Again, that stuff does not work long term It just doesn't um, Intimacy disorder, and I, I looked this up Again, this is what psychologists today are, are saying about sexual addiction. Sexual addiction is not a thing, all right? Like, it's not in the DSM. Um, yes, addictions are a habitual thing, right? And I've talked about that before as well. Defining addiction in the dictionary um, is simply a bad habit, right? Webster's Dictionary adequates addiction to having a bad habit, a behavior that you don't like that keeps repeating itself. Uh, that that would be the definition of addiction. But as far as psychologists, uh, the approach in mental health circles towards uh, sex addiction, they are talking about treating it as a intimacy disorder or attachment disorder. Some have used those words. Um, and what intimacy disorder is, 
uh, and this is from uh, a treatment center called Promises. Promises uh, Treatment Center uh, treats mental health issues, um, addiction, eating disorders, and sexually compulsive behavior, uh, from what I can gather from their web website. And they uh, they define um, intimacy disorder as a... Here, here's their definition. An intimacy disorder is a condition that makes it difficult to establish close intimate relationships with other people. These relationships can be strictly emotional in nature, but they also include various types of sexual contact. In some cases, the symptoms of fear of intimacy may qualify as a diagnosed condition called social anxiety disorder. However, you can also experience intimacy problems without meeting the criteria for diagnosing this condition. Um, what is social anxiety disorder? Social anxiety disorder, also known as social phobia, is officially recognized by the American Psych uh, Psychiatric Association and is an anxiety disorder. All anxiety disorders produce strong forms of certain unwanted disruptive emotions, fear, dread, worry, and apprehension in situations that don't normally trigger these responsive responses in the average person. A person with social anxiety disorder experiences these emotions in social situations that have the capability to produce embarrassment or bring about judgment of others. Fear of embarrassment or judgment may lead to significant, significant fear of intimacy. Intimacy disorder can also be referred to in attachment theory psychology. Attachment theory. Attachment is a deep and enduring emotional bond that connects one person to another across time and space. Source, Ainsworth, 1973 originating in the psychological work of John Bowlby, 1969. And the attachment does not have to be reciprocal. that song a lot on this podcast and it's you reaches in and it yeah that, that feels like that that aching hunger why won't it die why won't it pull me apart it, it, it is kind of pulling you apart um and it can and i speak from experience here it can pull you apart in a good way because it's calling you to ask deeper questions about your own identity and how you arrived at this place in time. This is a little time travel is what this is like, right? And this stuff is deeply embedded in how relationships function, how they grow, how they unfold. When I first started researching intimacy disorder, I came across 
this language of social anxiety. And I thought, that's not me. I'm not shy, right? Like I, I equated anyone with social anxiety as someone who couldn't be around people, right? And I, I can be around people. I've done sales for most of my life. I was a, I used to party for a living, all right, when I was a, a drug dealer. But I also... I also, um, I could feel loneliness in a crowd of people. That's something that I, I've experienced. Felt like I had to hide big chunks of myself to feel okay. And in this love relationship with my wife, you know, love and affection are these mysteries, right? But I've also felt just gripping fear when it came to conflict or something that I know would upset her, just having conversations about hard things, I would get really defensive. And all of that is social anxiety. And that term comes from the psychological side of this thing, but I'm also interested in the philosophical side. What does philosophy have to say about this Um, John Armstrong is a British philosopher who lives in Melbourne, Australia. He wrote a book called Conditions of Love, The Philosophy of Intimacy. One of his quotes, um, I found this really interesting. This is the eternal tragedy of love. If love is successful, if our love is returned and develops into a relationship, the person we are with must turn out to be other than we imagine them to be. Love craves closeness, and closeness always brings us face to face with something other than we expected. And that's a quote from that book by John Armstrong, uh, Conditions of Love. Love and affection. I, I tend to see love defined as affection in culture. So interesting. I, I haven't got the book yet, but I'm putting it on my list. Love, affection, the feelings that surround closeness. Man, intimacy. Um, it, It's like that. And uh, this episode is going to end right here. I, I wanted to cover that, the definition of intimacy disorder in this episode. And then the next episode... How do attachments and judgment affect how we do relationship, how we do risk-taking, how we move forward in our everyday lives? Because, listen, we all have judgments, attributes, conditions that we place on how we distribute our love and affection. And hopefully I can take on some of these big questions Not that I have all the answers, right? But it's just the questions pouring out, like, how do they affect closeness, nakedness, and how that results in affecting our sexuality? Um, Again, I'm not a psychologist, okay? I've just been doing this for 12 years, all right? And I've struggled with my own stuff, and I've been through a lot of work, a lot of therapy, a lot of talking with God, a lot of talking with professionals and folks who know way more than I do. 
And yes, I realize that you and I are different, but when you get around people that have got wisdom, it's been helpful for me. So judgment in the next episode, man, going to get into that. Because some of you listening, and as I was listening, I was thinking the same thing. If I was you, right? Is Russ going to reveal some secret or some relapse that he had? Um, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about anything that I haven't already talked about. Um, there's not going to be any big surprises, but I am going to dig a little deeper into what I've said in the past and how this show may have dug its way into my identity as a, uh, a speaker of the healing arts, right? Uh, a microphone that's you know, an advocate for mental health and spiritual well-being, you know. And as a result, I feel like I've been shy about the parts where I've really been digging in and growing, getting into the mud and the dirt and the roots. And I'm not ashamed of that. It reminds me of that Macklemore song, right? Like, I made my sobriety so public there's no fucking privacy. There's some truth to that. But this isn't starting over. That's the title of that song. This is getting realer and facing some of my own conditions I've placed on myself for having a relationship with with you, the listening audience. And that's a big part of why I continue to do this is the survey page, man. You guys fill out those surveys and uh, emails. Again, Russ at ASI247.org. This thing is still out there. Years of this podcast is still affecting people's lives. And for me to stop doing it over the summer, I really felt like I don't want to be the sex guy anymore, right? The sex addiction guy. I don't want to be that guy. But I'm not that guy. You know? I, I'm much more complex. Um, I, I've heard people like Tony Robbins and some of these folks who are you know, motivational speakers. And I've heard it said that motivation is kind of like taking a bath, right? Or getting washed. You're, you're getting washed with motivation. It it feels good and, and it encourages one to go on a diet or, or something like that. But the people that do that kind of work, the motivational work, and some of that I've seen in myself, right? There's something to wanting to... Um, not necessarily hide it, but maybe sugarcoat it, just brush over and, and not get into the depths because that's intimate, right? Like that's the intimate part. We, we like to brush over the top because, oh, I got to reveal this thing down deep in myself and there's real fear involved. And I think I spent a lot of time working to motivate and encourage people towards sobriety, Right. When what I needed to be doing also was encouraging folks uh, to to get naked on a different kind of level to understand what vulnerabilities look like. And a lot of this is because I didn't I didn't know I didn't see this in myself. I wasn't awake to it. There's parts of me that were still lying dormant and unconscious. And over the last few years, I've had a lot of waking up to do. I do love people, man. I am a lover of people, and I, I love every single one of you who listen to this thing. 
You and I are brothers and sisters and kindred spirits in a way. And the judgment thing is a big one, man. And just you having those thoughts of, can I trust this guy? Right? What's he going to say? I imagine that's been going on for a lot of years, especially with uh, my my Christian brothers and sisters out there. All right? Uh, that word's got a lot of baggage, and I consider myself still a Christian, all right, a uh, Christ follower, um, and, and we'll get into some of that on this next episode because it's it's affecting this. It really is. Our relationship with the creator of the universe and how judgment functions and operates in the paradigm of our own value and how we value ourselves. Uh, By the way, ASI is a listener-supported podcast, uh, ASI247.org. I'd like to make more of these more frequently. The reason I'm on about two a month is busyness. And this show, I do another show, Punk Theology, that's more fun and it's it's mostly interviews and, and conversations I have with friends. It doesn't require the the thought and production and um, I, I'll be honest, the energy that this one does. And I say that with uh, care in my heart because I, I want to take care as I produce these podcasts. Uh, because I know other humans are hearing them. And uh, again, I'm just a freaking Uber and Lyft driver from Seattle. What the fuck do I know? Honestly, all I got is what I know in my knower down in my heart. I'm a guy that's lived hard and reckless at times in my life, embracing full on uh, what I called in quotes freedom. This is life experience from someone who's witnessed the underbelly of society and culture. This is the faith-based stuff, right? That's that's welling up out of out of deeper places um, that I don't invite most people into. Uh, that's what's going on here. This has made an impact on people's lives, and it continues to, and... Uh, I would appreciate anything that you could send uh, my way doing this podcast because it does make a difference and it does uh, keep the thing rolling, which is what money is, right? The time that you spend doing what you do helps me spend the time doing this. Um, That's what giving and commerce and the economy does but this show is uh it's funded by a very different kind of economy i don't have sponsors so it's only by the donation of listeners that uh results in more podcasts coming out more quickly frequently i believe would be the appropriate word So, ASI247.org, there is a give button, become a co-producer. That's what you are when you give to this thing, man. You you co-produce with me. Producing is part of that life energy, right? And and it makes this thing happen. So, again, I I, I got my uh, 
I got my producer hat on asking you to, to put a producer hat on. All right. And, uh, and help me out over here. So again, ASI247.org. You can give there. Uh, I do love you guys. I do want to keep producing more shows and I do appreciate every single one of you that listen. Wanted to leave you guys with a bumper from uh, one of these songs that gets me right. Uh, speaking of, uh, social anxiety, you know, and, and me going, Oh, well, I'm not shy. Right. Uh, but this is one of those things Um, for most of my life. I've been a driver. All right. I've had driving jobs, jobs where I'm on the road ever since I was 17 earlier, actually, before I had a driver's license, I was driving to make money. That was part of it. All right. And, and that, that anxiety that I had around people, I felt pretty comfortable around people, but there's always, there's always that thing inside again. Uh, I just want to be back out there on that open road. This artist is Scott H. Brem. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, from the album, bad ingredients. The song is called open road. Uh, there's a Spotify playlist for this podcast, by the way. Uh, if you go to Spotify and search ASI Podcast Bumps, I changed the name of it. Um, but that's uh, all the music I've played on the podcast over the years is right there. And and follow the bands, all right? If you click follow or save some of the albums, uh, they'll give you notifications when they come to your town. And that's helpful for the artists, you know, get out experience some music uh, gets in you right gets in your heart gets in your soul music's good for the soul all right the arts are good for us i love what c.s lewis said about the arts he was asked why he uh why he writes fiction and and gets into the poetry of of this right and he said because because art because fiction because storytelling gets past people's watchful dragons without asking for permission. And for me, this song did just that. Some of my very early memories of security ain't never felt nothing like a warm, safe place until I hit that open road. I love you guys. I do mean that sincerely, all right? Till next time.